0: From the Salvation Army National Headquarters, this is the Fight for Good Podcast.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Fight for Good Podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Foley, broadcasting from our offices here at National Headquarters in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. Today it happens to be a snowy day, and it's nice to be inside. With me, as always, is my right-hand man, my left-hand man, Mr. Jeff McDonald, our editorial director.
2: Greetings, Colonel Foley. Good to be with you.
1: How are you doing today? You, I'm I'm
2: well. It's for a Friday. I'm hanging in there.
1: You're surviving the uh, the the winter. Oh, the blast! Uh, the us. wintry
2: blast. Oh, yes. It's upon yeah. us. Yep. A, good, I,
1: a good quote
2: from you today, sir? Well, I do, actually. That might um, have some bearing. Um, this is from Joseph Campbell. He says, every failure to cope with a life situation must be laid in the end to a restriction of consciousness. Wars and temper tantrums are the makeshifts of ignorance. Regrets or illuminations come too late. So there's something to either think about or not.
1: I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, is this another dig? Are you taking another dig at my leadership? I, I don't know.
2: Oh, yeah, right. no. No, I, I internalize everything. So it's more yeah. about me.
1: I love your quotes. Thank you for all that you're doing. I'm glad you're stay, staying safe. And with us as well is our executive producer, our producer that does everything for us. Elizabeth, how are you today? How are you? I'm doing great. You know, I got here, uh, took a little longer to get to work today, drove a little slower, enjoyed a little bit of snowfall. I know this is nothing to you as a New England girl, <laughs> but uh, as a California boy, you know, every time the snow falls, I just get all giddy.
0: It's exciting.
1: And it's very exciting. And also, I logged on to our, our Zencaster software today and saw that we're at uh, we're, uh, we're L- available to do video of this so in the future we're going to tinker around with that a bit right
0: that's right it's going to be exciting well i'm
1: very very excited about that well we're we're very excited that our listeners you our listener has downloaded us today because you are in treat for a very special uh, episode and you know if you've been listening to us for a while every one of our episodes is uh, special and diverse And we have a wide array of different people that we talk to with and within uh, within the Salvation Army and without and a variety of different authors. And today we're very fortunate to have with us Dr. Elizabeth Stanley. And she is going to be discussing with us her book, Widening the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from the Trauma. I am so interested in hearing what the good doctor has to say today. And, and Dr. Stanley, we welcome you into the Fight for Good podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Colonel Foley. Um, and Jeff, uh, please call me Liz. I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, we will, we will, uh, we'll make it as, as uh, informal as possible. You know, Jeff likes to be called Your Royal Highness, but I try to kind of <laughs> yeah. you know how you much know worse how, Liz. You know how editors are. You know they're they're that type.
2: Yeah, we well, right.
1: well we have a we have a few uh, questions for you today in regards to your book, and I I, I guess my first question that I would ask is a, probably a little bit more informal, but just tell our
0: listeners a little bit about who you are? Well, I um, teach at Georgetown. I've been there for almost 20 years. Um, But earlier in my life, I served uh, in the U.S. Army as an intelligence officer. Um, And I came to this topic of stress, trauma, and resilience um, through the pathway of my own life. Um, I think many authors research and write about what they personally need to learn for themselves. And that was definitely the case with me. Um, The arc of work that culminated in this book, Widen the Window, um, really was initially a journey to heal myself and then to share all that I learned with others. I've experienced a lot of stress and trauma in my life. Um, Childhood adversity, sexual violence, uh, when I was in the military, of course, stressful military training, two deployments overseas, in uh, the Balkans, a near-death experience while I was in Bosnia. Um, so that by the time I got to graduate school, my, my body was pretty much done because I had spent decades um, coping with all of this stress and trauma the way many of us in our culture have been socialized to cope with it, which is to say, I shoved it under, I pushed it aside, I compartmentalized it, and I just kind of kept trying to power through. But that doesn't actually work for our neurobiology, and it certainly didn't for mine. Um, And eventually, I developed PTSD and depression and chronic respiratory illnesses and insomnia. And eventually, I I lost my eyesight for a period of time. I had Lyme disease, but I didn't know it. Um, And that got my attention. It was sort of this big cosmic wake-up call. Um, And... That sent me initially, as I said, on a journey to heal myself. And then I designed a resilience training program and spent now over 15 years teaching it in different high stress settings and partnering with neuroscientists to study its effectiveness um, with troops before combat deployment and in other high stress settings.
2: Well, yeah, that's, uh, and, you know, along the way, your accomplishments are. Are great, you know your your doctoral work, your teaching, your uh, development of the um, program for dealing with stress, et cetera. It's pretty remarkable that you've endured that. Certainly, you're a Type A person. I would say, no.
0: <laughs> yes, um,
1: <laughs>
0: I definitely was socialized to keep going, and um, I think because there was so much pain and shame inside me. Um, I externalized very much um, to try and have outward achievement, and it it created a bit of an inner division in me. Um, And in the book, I explore how this kind of inner division can happen to all of us when we've experienced chronic stress and trauma, and we haven't really had enough recovery. So in some ways, this has been a journey to wholeness that isn't to make light of the accomplishments or to make light of the trauma. Both pieces kind of came together, but I am definitely a a happier, more peaceful, more connected person now. Um, And it really helped me to understand all the science um, because it helped me take what was happening much less personally to understand this is just how minds and bodies act. This is how they behave when they've experienced stress and trauma and have not had recovery.
2: There is so much good information in your book, widening the window, about dealing with stress, trauma, and dysregulation in mind, body, and soul. It reminds me of the attribute Hemingway gave to his main character, Nick Adams, of having grace under pressure. Your Mm -hmm. book is an intricate tour guide through the labyrinth of our minds, emotions, and physiology, as you guide people to deal with rather than be overcome by reality. We are particularly interested in speaking with you about the prevalence of PSTD, and, tra- and trauma and our heightened understanding of it officers and soldiers in the salvation army who are committed to serving human need without discrimination in christ's name are normally driven to extend themselves extremely on behalf of others mm-hmm. a calling that has placed even greater demands on them as they have rushed to provide in to provide relief during the COVID pandemic salvation army personnel and those they serve will be emerging from this last, latest chapter in our nation's history with heightened stress, uncertainty, and the need to readjust pressing realities. I know that you cannot offer simple solutions, but what can you share with us about how we can c- consider ourselves in a new light in the months ahead?
0: That's a great question, Jeff. Um, and I guess I would say that Um, there's kind of two things that I I keep in mind, two principles to keep in mind for helping us to help our mind and body feel safe enough that it will turn on the recovery functions that are naturally there. Um, One of the reasons why we can end up so depleted and so dysregulated is because we're turning stress on and we're never turning it off. And so we need to take some conscious effort uh, and intentionality to help our bodies turn that stress off. And the first kind of general principle I would share with listeners is that we are always resonating with our environment. Um, We are wired as social animals. And in the book, I I talk about all the new neuroscience that explains how much we are driven by our social wiring. Um, But one of the big takeaways of our social wiring is that stress arousal and emotions, especially negative emotions, can be contagious um, if we're surrounded by people who are very sad, very anxious, very angry, and we're not kind of mindful of it, we can pick up that emotion and it will resonate in us as well. And these um, stress and emotions are most contagious in relationships when we are um, either with you know parents and children and our romantic partners, so our attachment bonds. But they're also really important and contagious in relationships that involve power differences, such as between teachers and their students or um, Salvation Army personnel with the people that they are helping. And, you know, it, compassion works by helping to block some of that negative distress contagion that we can happen because when we're in a compassionate state, Um, we've turned on the social bonding hormones that help kind of protect from that contagion. But when we have been going and going and going as the officers and people who work for the Salvation Army have been doing, you can end up with compassion fatigue. And what happens with compassion fatigue is that when we've narrowed our capacity through our own chronic stress and trauma and we're experiencing compassion fatigue, we can no longer turn on that social bonding hormone of of oxytocin. And at that place, then as we move to help someone who's in distress, we're not actually gonna block their distress from uh, coming into us, but we're going to pick it up as well. So we will pick up their stress contagion. So this was a very long winded way for the first principle of saying, we need to be careful where we are putting ourselves. And when we're putting ourselves constantly Um, with people who are in pain, with people who are stressed and traumatized and and suffering themselves, and we're not allowing enough time for ourselves to get recovery, we're going to pick that up um, and it's going to be challenging. So keeping this in mind, it's really helpful to spend time in nature. It's helpful to spend time in loving relationships with people who are very well regulated and balanced themselves. Um, it's really helpful to spend time getting good, restful sleep. All of those things are ways that we can resonate in our, with our environment kind of in a protective way. And the second principle I would say is we always have choice in where we're directing our attention. And wherever our attention is being directed, either consciously or unconsciously, if we're doing it in a repeated way, it's going to have very big ripple effects on our mind and body and our nervous system. So let's say we have the unconscious habit of uh, worrying that we're always kind of worrying about what's, what if, what if, what if, what's happening next? Um, Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? When we let our mind develop this habit pattern of worry, it actually turns stress arousal on in us. Even if the environment around us is very safe and quiet, if our mind is worrying We are directing our attention, in this case, usually unconsciously, in a way that's going to actually turn stress on. So becoming aware of kind of the science of how, where our attention is directed, it gives us a lot of leverage. If we direct our attention to um, target objects that are calming, that are stable, like noticing the contact of our butt in contact with the chair right now or opening your attention widely to listen to the the snow falling outside, these kinds of attentional objects, they're actually very calming for our mind and body, and they can help us start to move towards recovery. So knowing that we resonate with our environment, knowing we always have choice with where we direct our attention, those are two simple things that we actually have a fair amount of choice around that can help us um, protect us from taking on any more stress or trauma.
1: It's, it's really interesting because what you're saying kind of reaffirms probably in a little more technical and um, technical psychological point of view of, of emphasizing what I recently published a book on rest in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm actually speaking to uh, a whole cadre of Salvation Army officers located in Oregon and uh, Idaho next week. And their leader has said, you know, they're they're just dealing. They've just been dealing with so much different nuances, not just with COVID. I mean, they they had to help people face that, but they also had to learn how to do church differently. And Mm -hmm. then Oregon was hit by traumatic um, uh, forest fires, yes, caused all sorts of things. Now they have ice storms, and it's kind of like one thing after another. But when you were talking about that, I just I just think about. You know, it, it, it comes down to something simple as creating space in your life. And that that does take a, a lot of intentional discipline because you're could, can you talk about how, how does somebody that lives a very busy, active as that's a social activist that, you know, is engaged in trying to help? How do they create these anchor points in their lives to 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 get back to a sense of wholeness?
0: That is a great question. Um, And I guess the first thing I would say is sometimes when we hear the word intention, we expect that it's going to be something that requires something really big and really effortful and really time consuming. And actually from the perspective of our neurobiology, that's not necessarily the case because everything about the way that our mind and body are wired is the result of repeated experiences we have. And you know we have lots of repeated experiences with stress that moves us towards dysregulation. We have lots of repeated experiences with dopamine hits that moves us towards addiction, right? So we have lots of repeated experiences. Habits, This the, the big takeaway from this is habits are really critical. Habits drive our repeated experiences and they can be conscious habits, that we set up each day in our lives. They don't have to take a lot of time, but they do need to happen every day. Um, and having beneficial habits, you know, there's all kinds of science now showing how beneficial habits have just these amazing effects on helping to reduce chronic inflammation in our bodies, helping us to feel less lonely, helping us to rest better, helping us to um, experience less, fewer negative emotions. Like all of these things are the result of habits that we do that don't need to take a lot of time, but that need to happen every day. You know, in our research with um, troops, combat troops preparing for deployment, many of them didn't want to be taking um, mindfulness-based mind fitness training, the resilience training program I created, um, MFIT. They didn't necessarily want to be in the MFIT course, but they were in the MFIT course because that's what their unit was doing. And they would practice as a group um, after they would do physical training in the morning, they would practice as a group you know, 10 or 15 minutes together. Um, and, you know, what was amazing is you wouldn't think 10 or 15 minutes would have such a big effect, but after two months, after, you know, eight weeks of the course, they did the research that, you know, they'd done baseline testing and then we did testing you know, eight weeks later. And then we also did testing while they were going through stressful military combat drills so that we could see them using these skills in action. And it's amazing, they saw tremendous differences, better cognitive performance, better emotion regulation, shifts in the part of their brain patterns, um, shifts in their brain activation patterns, uh, in the parts of the brain that regulate emotions and impulse control, Um, they saw more efficient stress arousal, their heart rates would get faster, quicker, they go higher faster, and they come back down faster after the stress was over. They saw shifts in blood biomarkers, um, in the biomarkers of resilience, like neuropeptide Y, and the biomarkers for sleep and uh, immune functioning, like um, insulin-like growth factor. And all of this came from, they were keeping logs, they were practicing on average 12 minutes a day. So, I say all that to say, yes, everybody is very, very um, stretched right now. And yet, we can make little shifts, little intentional choices to build in 15 minutes a day that we're going to train our attention, or 15 minutes a day that we're going to sit outside in nature and just notice the calming effect of being in nature, or 15 minutes a day in prayer, or 15 minutes a day. Um, just sitting quietly with a cup of tea, like any of these things, 15 minutes a day getting exercise. Now, there's little tweaks we can do. As long as we're doing them in a repeated way, they are going to lead to real effects in our minds and body.
1: We're always interested in how authors come up with uh, titles for their books. And uh, I love the title of your book because it's just a, it's a beautiful metaphor, but we're, we're wondering, why, why the title, Widening the Window?
0: <laughs> um, well, a big <laughs> part of the book is about the, it's a, a metaphor, of course, but a big part of the book is about the window of tolerance to stress arousal that each of us have. Um, and everybody's window is different. Uh, we start wiring our window while we are actually the third trimester in the womb, Um, the third trimester of pregnancy, um, as our ventral nervous system is starting to develop, our brain is developing. And in the book, I lay out the science of kind of how this window initially happens, how it narrows through life experiences. And importantly, the the third part of the book, eight chapters of the book are all about how we can intentionally widen the window. We narrow our window through um, the first pathway is, is childhood stress, childhood adversity, which actually affects our neurobiological development. And that sets our mind and body on a trajectory towards having a narrowed window later in life. Um, Second pathway to narrowing the window is big shock trauma events, like um, these big natural disasters uh, and extreme weather events we've had this year, like uh, terrorist attacks or or combat or rape. Um, And then the third pathway to narrowing the window is just chronic stress in everyday life, Uh, relational trauma in everyday life. Um, Things like chronic sleep deprivation, um, caring for uh, an ill family member, being in a relationship that has a lot of chronic tension, um, or um, having to hide your emotions at work. And these things sound very mundane, but again, repeated experiences, right? If we're doing these things in a repeated way, they can still lead to narrowing effects just like one of those big shock trauma events. Um, The window of tolerance, when we're inside our window, we have the capacity to keep all of our intentional um, decision-making, awareness, social engagement online during stress. We're much better able to function well and access choice while we're stressed. We're better able to recover. Um, When our window is narrowed, we're likely to either have um, our thinking brain functions get degraded, we might experience memory problems, we might have trouble paying attention, we might lose all willpower, because willpower is actually a thinking brain function that gets degraded during stress, so we're much more likely to give in to our emotions or our cravings. When our window is narrowed, we're also likely to do like I did for many years in my life, um, where we kind of power through, we override our body's limits, we um, compartmentalize our emotions, we push our pain to the side, and um, you know aspects of our culture really value this, but it doesn't work over the long term because stuff comes out sideways, usually in our physical health. And when our window is narrowed, we're also more likely to have stress and emotion drive our decisions, And lead us to self-medicate our distress with um, substances, with adrenaline-seeking behavior, sometimes violent behavior or self-harming behavior. So our window being narrowed really has effects on our happiness, our ability to connect with others, our performance. Um, But as I said at the beginning of this little piece that I'm saying, and the reason I chose the title, Widen the Window, is that even if our window has been narrowed, and Lord knows mine was... Um, we can widen our window and everybody's window can be widened. Um, And as I said, there are are eight chapters in the book that lay out kind of the science behind how we can do that. Again, it comes back to what I said much earlier in our discussion, that we're resonating with our environment and we always have choice in where we're directing our attention.
2: It's really interesting, you know, reading your book uh, that uh, given uh, your research, et cetera, our understanding, of the extent of trauma and PTSD in our lives has expanded greatly. Could you elaborate on that?
0: Yes, Um, it's interesting. I think there's been kind of a confluence in the last 20 years, probably in part because we've had um, these very long wars that the United States has been engaged in and there've been many troops coming home with PTSD. There's also been, I think, a lot of a lot more awareness of the effects of trauma um, after sexual violence um, and the effects of trauma on children. And so I think trauma has become um, a little bit more uh, kind of it's risen in, in, in collective consciousness and awareness. Um, but as I discuss in one of the chapters of the book, culturally here in the united states we still collectively have a tendency to disown trauma Um, trauma happens when the survival brain that's what i call it in the book but the parts of our brain that are operating unconsciously and that are constantly assessing our environment both our outer environment around us and our inner environment inside us um, when the survival brain assesses us to feel helpless powerless or lacking control during a period of stress. So this isn't a conscious choice in a stressful situation. This is the the survival brain's unconscious threat assessment process. And during that process, it's perceiving that we do not have power or control over the situation. And when that happens, um, it turns on even more stress arousal. And it also puts us into um, a posture that makes it harder for us to recover because of the way that the survival brain encodes memory during traumatic events. Um, It makes it very easy in the future that if another situation happens that contains triggers or cues related to that traumatic event, the survival brain is going to remember that previous traumatic event and it's going to start kind of acting out programming in the way we move through a situation. It's one of the reasons why we can sometimes be like, wow, why did I just completely like I I so overreacted in that situation? Why did I do that? And our thinking brain doesn't know why, but often there's some aspect of this current situation that is um, has some trigger that led the survival brain to think we were still back in that previous situation. And it wants to try the same strategy again. So. With PTSD, for example, I'm sure everyone's sort of familiar with the story of or they've seen perhaps somebody who is sitting quietly and then there's a car backfire outside and then they jump and they start, you know, they get very panicked and freaked out. That's an example of, of one of these unresolved traumatic memory capsules with the sound, perhaps of gunfire in it. And the survival brain has generalized um, to that car backfiring from this um the sound of gunfire that's in this unresolved memory capsule. And then this person is now full of terror and trying to hide or duck and cover or, and all of that is kind of the programming that the survival brain is, is it acting out to try and resolve the original trauma. And of course it's, it's not going to be successful. I hope that was helpful. I'm not sure it just was, but I guess let me complete that by saying often once we've experienced trauma, our minds and bodies begin to act in ways that we consciously don't understand. But there are, there are neurobiological reasons why it's happening and we can heal from it. We just need to understand how to help the survival brain do that healing.
1: I'm just curious, Liz, uh, you, you, you're teaching currently at, at Georgetown, uh, have you worked this material into any of the curriculum of the courses you teach?
0: Yes. I teach a course called Decision Making in Stressful Environments. Um, It's a very popular course and uh, it is very focused on this. The first half of the semester focuses on neurobiology at the individual level and the students do all of the exercises involved in my resilience training program. And then the second half of the semester kind of takes it out to the collective and looks at collective human groups um, in social in, in stressful and traumatic environments and how that affects kind of collective patterns of behavior, how organizations function during stress. Um, and they really enjoy it. Uh, I, I enjoy teaching it. I enjoy teaching the individual and collective levels together because humans are in both situations.
1: Is, is that undergrad or graduate? Course?
0: That's a graduate class.
1: Yeah, well, you got the. <laughs> it's like yeah, sign you, me up. I mean, uh, you, well, got a, you got an opening for an old old guy. Uh, uh, <laughs> can I sneak in?
2: <laughs> well, that's what yet you know, I get from reading your book. You know, there's the labyrinth of the mind is uh, extensive. You know, the army uh, has a ministry to the whole person. You know, mind, body, spirit, um, and I, you know, I think what you're speaking about. You know, deals directly with that. Of course, Army personnel are experienced in, in responding to disasters, those helping people who are victims of disaster. Um, there's so many things we can talk to you about, but you speak about the essential traits of wisdom and courage in your book, along with self-discipline in dealing with stress and trauma, whether the internal stress stems from early childhood years, adolescence, from a sudden disaster, or ongoing conflicts in families. Can you elaborate on your emphasis on wisdom and courage?
0: Yes. So, um, I come from a very long warrior lineage. Um, I'm the ninth person, uh, ninth generation in my family to serve in the U S army. Um, my sister and I are the first two women in that lineage to serve in the Stanley lineage in the U S army, but anyway, long, long military lineage. Um, and I, you know, watch the effects of unresolved, unhealed, uh combat trauma in both my grandfather um and my father and you know lived the effects of that as a child because my dad's narrowed window from his experience then affected the wiring of my own window. So it's part of why I got very interested in in the intergenerational piece. But I do think that this um warrior lineage was really important too. And as a result, I did a lot of research into the warrior traditions. And what was striking to me as I was learning about warrior traditions all around the world, you know, over many millennia, um, the traditions in the West and in the East, the one thing that was common to all of them is that they all had practices that involved mind-body training um, that was done in a self-disciplined way. So it was done as a repeated experience. And the goal of the training, the intention behind this mind-body training, was to cultivate wisdom and courage. And you know, there are other values involved depending on the lineage, but all of the lineages across the board shared this common focus on wisdom and courage. And that was interesting to me. Um, and as I was building the MFIT course, I realized I wanted to be working with warriors too. I, I did, I've taught in many different military and first responder settings. And wisdom and courage are really important values there. Um, and as I was exploring even further in my own mind and body during my own intense training, I realized that wisdom and courage kind of happen in the moment. You know, we usually think of these as big qualities that are generalized, but actually they're, they're moment-to-moment qualities. They, they manifest moment-to-moment. And it made me understand that the reason why the warrior traditions cultivate them and the ability to access the moment to moment is because warriors are in very uncomfortable, usually very um, uh, uh, challenging situations, often dire circumstances where the ability to access wisdom and courage moment to moment is going to have a life or death impact. So moment to moment, Wisdom moment to moment is the ability to pay attention and know where the attention is directed and to use that information um, and see it clearly, Not, not how we want it to be, not how it should be, but how it really is, and then be able to see that clearly enough that we can act on that unvarnished assessment of the information. Encourage moment to moment is really the ability to tolerate very challenging situations without being jerked around by our habits to avoid unpleasant or to lean in and reach for more pleasant. But so we're not jerked around by some of these habits, but that we can then take that unvarnished seeing of the situation, tolerate the situation and be able to choose the best response in that moment. That's going to cause the least harm. That's going to be, you know, for the the greatest good. Um, and so as a result, in MFIT, the, the two core capacities that, that people are cultivating are attentional control, which is that moment-to-moment manifestation of wisdom, and tolerance for challenging experience, that moment-to-moment manifestation of courage.
2: Yeah, that's that's a lot to uh, think about. <laughs> um, yeah. the uh, So I know that you're the point you make in your book is, you know, there's, a, there's a, a high degree of personal responsibility involved in this. And also this is not a, uh, there's no easy fix. This is, you were talking about regular patterns, development of habits. I have a, a question. What encouragement can you give in light of what we know about neuroplasticity, epigenetics, and our propensity for self-awareness? I think
0: I think the first thing I would say is even if we have wired our minds and bodies in a direction that it feels like we are in a deep hole that we don't wanna be in, or that we are, now I'm gonna mix a metaphor, that we've gone down a cul-de-sac and we do not wanna be in this cul-de-sac anymore. Um, The really amazing thing about our minds and bodies is that they always have this ability to change. Um, We can change our gene expression. We can change the functioning and structure of our brain. We can change the functioning and structure of our muscles. Um, It's it's all a response to repeated experiences. And if we've had a bunch of repeated experiences that have let us down a particular cul-de-sac, we don't want to be anymore, we can begin again. Any moment, we can choose to begin again. Um, Each day is a new day. Each minute is a new minute. Um, and we can interrupt our previous conditioning, our previous choices, and we can choose something else. That's one of the really amazing gifts of being human to have consciousness and to know that we can choose. Um, and, you know, practice any of these practices, even in the warrior traditions, any of the practices are oriented around them being a practice. It's something that we do. We might fall off the wagon. We can come back on the wagon. We might fall off again. We can come back on again. Each moment is a new moment. And we can always begin again. And then we can continue accumulating repeated experiences in a beneficial direction. And our minds and bodies and the landscapes of our lives change as a result.
2: Yeah, I don't want to hog the microphone, Colonel. If you want to jump in, I well, mean, there's a lot to think about here.
1: <laughs> you know, when it comes, Liz, when it comes to you know interviewing authors, I'm the simpleton, and Jeff, he digs. Now. <laughs> he's he's our wise old Al. So I'm just I'm I, I'm just sitting here, just completely uh, enamored with what you have to say and uh and and what you're sharing. I'm just curious from maybe the academic and and the feedback. Component. How has the response been? And in, in what are some kind of examples of how people are responding to what it is you've taught and you've written on?
0: Hmm. I, I really feel like I've had an opportunity. You know, I, I know the science and I know from within consciousness for both of these ways how interconnected we are, but it's been really wonderful to see and receive feedback from how this has helped other people. Um, And this last year, um, right before the, right before we started uh, pandemic life where everything shut down. So last winter, last January, I, um, I partnered with a company called Sounds True and was out in Denver for 10 days before last spring semester to do the filming for um, an online version of my resilience training program. And we were able to launch that last November. And so that it's available on demand right now. Um, And it's the eight week course. Of course, it's different when they're not, it's not taught live in a group with 40 people in the room together, but it's still the same material. And it's been wonderful to um, once a month, I lead a live Q and a with the group um, and to see and hear um, both people how they're responding to the book and how they're responding to the exercises and sharing how it's leading to changes in their lives. I mean that's the reason I, I teach. Um, I love to see that what I've learned can be a benefit to others um, and to see also how as they make shifts, it is having ripple effects into you know the lives of the people around them. I mean that is one of the the most amazing things about our social wiring, just like stress and emotions are contagion, self-regulation and resilience are also contagious. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a big gift we give the world. We give everybody that we cross paths with all day long. Our, if we're present, if we're self-regulated, if we're resilient, we are conveying that to everyone who crosses our path during the day. In the same way, if if we're anxious and angry and um, uh, ashamed and and sad, we're sharing that with everyone we're around all day. And um, I've just been very happy to have this out in the world and let it have ripples and to have some of the ripples come back and, and show me how our collective window is getting wider as a result. And that makes me very happy. Well,
1: one of the reasons Jeff and I do this podcast is that we get to be with our producer Elizabeth, who is an extremely happy and positive person. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I, uh, I, I love being around people who, uh, you know, can help me see the world in it in, in a positive way. It's a it's a brief life we have, yes. and for us to be kind of trapped in, in in our mind, I think your book gives us. No, I don't think. I think your book get, your book does give the reader, uh, steps and a way to hope that things can change, that it doesn't have to be as negative and as bad as you, you would imagine it, that you just have to break those kind of habits and those chains and, and move forward into freedom.
0: Absolutely. We all have that available. And, you know, it was a challenging choice to decide to share as much of my own story and the stories of the men and women that I've trained as I did I mean, sharing my own story was, it was a vulnerable thing to do. And I realized I needed to do that because I am exhibit A. And if someone knows the whole arc of my life, then you have to know that change is possible because I'm in a very radically different place than I was, um, you know, in, in earlier parts of my lives. And I think we humans learn by watching other humans and by being able to, um, to kind of see things we don't have to experience it all ourselves. We can do some of it vicariously. And, you know, if, if my story can help other people do that without having to experience all of that directly themselves, that's for the better. Um, but I think in our culture in general, we don't prioritize enough the very important role of rest and recovery and self-care. The word self-care can lead to these um kind of connotations of selfishness. And if spending a decade doing this research has taught me anything, it's not selfish. Whatever we choose to do intentionally to keep our own window wide, it gives us so much more capacity to navigate challenges. But again, it also allows us to be present and self-regulated. And that has ripple effects in every other person that we're with. Um, so it's, it's both a positive outlook, as you were saying, Jeff, but it's also like embodying being grounded and stable in our bodies, that embodiment of it, an embodiment of self-regulation and resilience. That's what other people's survival brains and nervous systems are picking up on. Um, and all of that together makes all of us much more grounded. It widens our collective image.
1: Well, your your book, the material in your book, probably wouldn't work unless you were transparent and authentic, because that's what people really need these days. They don't need a one, two, three-step formula. They just it, it helps when the author has experienced that, and and you can guide people through your own experience. So, thank you for being transparent uh, with 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 us, uh, the reader, and of course today with us here. Uh, uh, that the, we, pr- we produce a, a magazine here for a Z generation and you know, that's the number one thing is they're looking for transparency and authenticity, uh, for us as the elders here, but it does make us vulnerable and it does mm-hmm. cause us to feel maybe a little insecure because we haven't perfected all of it, uh, yet as we go along, but uh, we're in the business of, of trying to help people, uh, make some changes in their life with God's help and with each other's help and with the uh, great authors and, and educators and other people that have been through uh, the trenches. So we thank you for uh, what you have uh, shared with us today, what you have shared with the world uh, in, in your book. And uh, we wish you all the the, the success and uh, we're really honored, uh, Liz, that you joined us here today on the fight for good podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and pleasure to spend this time talking. Um, And thank you all for what you do in the world. You are such a positive ripple as an organization and as individuals within that organization that if um, my work can help support um, the officers out there doing what they're doing, I'm very glad for it.
1: Well, we do want to remind our listeners, and we will continue to uh, promote your book, uh, widening the window uh, as as we go forward with it, and uh, and we would encourage, the, and I'm sure you would welcome this, that if somebody reads a book and they have an experience that they want to share, what they've a lesson they've learned or something else, I, I believe you would welcome uh, any kind of correspondence.
0: Absolutely, um, please send listeners to my website Elizabeth-Stanley.com. Um, If you join my mailing list, you can download the um, five-minute audio-guided instructions for contact points, which is the first exercise in the sequence in in my resilience training program. You can also find links there to enroll in the entire online course if that would be supportive as well.
1: Well, if you see two old men dressed in skinny jeans holding Starbucks cups standing in the back (laughs) of your classroom, don't be suspicious. (laughs) You, you you have two new fans, and we're oh, just very yeah. curious. We'll we'll make a trip over the Potomac and see what's going on over there at Georgetown. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so. Well,
0: there's much. There's hope for us
2: too. There's hope for us. Yeah.
1: There's there's oh there's always hope for you, Jeff. There's none for me. And uh,
0: <laughs> that's not true.
2: That's right.
1: <laughs> well, that's going to end this episode of the Fight for Good podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow The War Cry and Peer Magazine on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, The War Cry is online. You can read it right now at thewarcry.org, as well as check out our magazine for the Z-Generation, peermag.org. We encourage you also to listen to our sister podcast with the youngsters, The Battle Lines with Captains Matt and Jamie Satterly. They're dealing with all sorts of different... Uh, cultural issues and wonderful topics. So give them a listen as well and tell your friends. Well, until next time, this has been the Fight for Good podcast. Bye for now.
0: Subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts.